0: Tonight, 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 tonight. with moose 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 old 30 Let's conduct an experiment of the imagination. Picture an interconnected network of individuals, separated by varying degrees of distance, many of them actively on the move. These individuals are able to exchange instantaneously news, information, opinions, an immediate and very mobile communication system, the likes of which had never been seen before. Sure, there was the telephone, but it was very much a stationary object. This network we're conjuring up in our minds got around a lot. Now, this probably wasn't too hard to imagine for most of you. Most of you have a link to just such a network in your pocket, or more likely if you're listening to this show, in your hand right at this very moment. But that's not what I'm talking about here. In fact, that little magic phone you're thinking of is, in a lot of ways, only here because of the network I'm thinking of. In 1937, a man by the incredibly musical name of Donald Hings invented a handheld shortwave radio communication device, the very first walkie-talkie. As is often the case throughout history, this unheard-of creation was seized upon by another, improved in some way, and claimed by this innovator, much to the dismay and eventual obscurity of the inventor. In this case, that innovator was Mr. Al Gross. His improved walkie-talkie debuted in 1938, and its success was such that about 95% of historical sources cite Mr. Gross as the inventor of the walkie-talkie, leaving Mr. Hengs to languor in the forgotten past. Now, Mr. Gross was no opportunist, however. He went on to develop, refine, and invent some very important technological advances that truly formed a foundation for many of the things we take for granted today. He was perfectly placed with his new walkie-talkie in hand when the great creative catalyst of the 20th century occurred. You know, World War II. We've all seen the movies, TV shows, and the little green plastic men that embody the wartime radio operator, usually crouched down to avoid weapon fire, carrying a radio on his back approximately the size and weight of a Volkswagen Beetle, ensuring that orders, commands, and pleas for lower back pain ointment made it to the front lines and back, whenever and wherever needed, heedless of the danger facing the radio operator. These were very real dangers because, even though the radio on his back was huge, it was most certainly not bulletproof. This one stereotyped but crucial military unit alone shows us how important the communication systems refined by Al Gross were to the important duties of the early 1940s, mainly the art of violently disagreeing with foreigners over a wide variety of issues. The big one wouldn't have been so pleasantly and efficiently resolved without the use of this shortwave radio technology. After the uneventful and quiet end to the war, the Navy hit upon an idea. They had trained a huge number of radio operators during the war. These returning veterans were all itching for something to do to fill those long hours that were formerly devoted to shooting at things, being shot at by things, and preserving democracy by cleaning up cigarette butts. Some returned stateside and, thanks to the U.S. military selling off all their surplus military motorcycles, started biker clubs. This is completely true. The Hells Angels took their name from a squadron of Air Corps fighter planes. Others looked for different amusements the navy didn't want to let the skills they had trained these soldiers in completely die away so they looked to the burgeoning hobby of electronics that was growing in popularity and advocated for a section of the radio frequency to be set aside for the use of the average veteran to maintain contact with their former military companions and keep alive the friendships forged in the crucible of war they decreed that the frequency band at 27 megahertz be devoted to use by these veterans It was designated as the Citizen's Band to differentiate from military, emergency service, government, and police bands. In 1948, Al Gross was the man who created the technology that would allow these veterans to access and utilize this frequency. In a stroke of creative brilliance, he called this new invention the Citizen's Band Radio. Even then, Americans were already trending towards the lazy and self-indulgent and therefore this equipment rapidly became known as the CB radio. In the early days of this new technological development, new uses and applications for it came up constantly. The police officer on the beat no longer had to get to a patrol box with a telephone inside to speak to headquarters, make a report, or call for backup. Fire and rescue operations became more efficient. However, the Citizens Band Radio found a niche that it fit perfectly and, to this day, remains the most closely associated field to the CB radio. The -the Over-The-Road Truck Driver. The CB was, really, a perfect fit for the long haul truckers of the world. They quickly developed their own lingo, verbal shortcuts to describe things and situations. The loneliness of the road, formerly only broken up by whatever brief snatches of local radio that could be picked up on the way through an area, suddenly became populated by scores of lonely, hard-driving, and even harder-living truckers, burning up the miles, hauling all the goods that couldn't move by ship or rail, getting important supplies like toilet paper and beef jerky to all the backwater, one-horse towns that are the backbone of this great nation. These truckers could key on to the mic and let other truckers know about road accidents, bad weather, and, perhaps most importantly, where the next speed trap was set. The trucking companies could communicate directly with the drivers. Many lives were saved on empty roads in the middle of nowhere because a trucker stopped to investigate a stalled car or horrific accident, sending a call for help through the airwaves connecting all these truckers in a massive electromagnetic brotherhood. Therefore, the CB radio became a necessity in the trucking industry. Every bit as important as coffee, a hot meal at a roadside diner, and white crosses. Nearly every semi on the road soon was sporting a CB and, usually, a long, flexible antenna called a whip. In the 1970s, however, a couple things happened that made the CB even more vital to the truck drivers and spread the awareness of them throughout the entire country. The energy crisis hit this nation hard, seeing, among other hardships, huge gas shortages. This affected everyone who drove a motor vehicle, and none more than the trucking industry. Suddenly, these drivers were using the CB to let each other know which gas stations had fuel and which ones didn't. I imagine it also helped with the procurement of the aforementioned white crosses, but that's just speculation. The public in general started to catch on to the versatility of the CB radio and began to buy them up for their cars, pickup trucks, RVs, and homes. This was a boon to the manufacturer of these radios as demand climbed rapidly. There was probably a bit of a boost for the White Cross industry as well. The other event that brought CBs to the forefront was a governmental one. Formerly, you had to hold a citizens Band operator's license to legally use a CB. In the 70s, that license cost around $40, which is almost $250 in today money. In the early 1970s, this license cost dropped to $4, just $25 in today money. The barrier to ownership was suddenly very low. These factors, the energy crisis and the drastically reduced price of a license, coupled with the ramped-up production of the CBs due to rising demand, caused an explosion of these radios in the public consciousness. The CB craze took over America. On the country radio stations and on the dim barroom jukeboxes around the nation, trucker music had already come into being. Artists like Red Sovine would sing tender, sappy ballads about crippled orphans talking into the CB late at night, befriending lonely truckers on the way to Topeka, or songs about missing Mama and hearing her voice in the whine of the tires on the wet macadam. But there was an artist standing in the wings who would explode onto the scene in synchronicity with the rise of the CB radio. Born from an idea formulated by an advertising agency and a group of incredibly talented musicians, C.W. McCall was born. The ultimate trucker's trucker, singing songs of gear-jamming 18-wheelers and hard-working yet simple men, swinging from the already atypical trucker songs I'd already mentioned, all the way to humorous songs that seemed to simultaneously mock the trucker lifestyle and yet hold it up as a profession to be admired and respected. C.W. got his start in 1972 with a song called The Old Home, Filler Up, and Keep on a Truckin' Cafe, which was initially developed as a background for a series of commercials for Old Home Bread, a bakery in the Midwest. It put Pisgah, Iowa on the map. The success of this novelty single led to several albums worth of songs, some serious, some funny, some downright heartbreaking. But the song that is the one that most people will immediately associate with C.W. McCall was yet to come that song detailed the struggles of a trucker going by the cb name or handle of rubber duck as he traveled down the road with his fellow truckers trying to avoid the attention of the police oh and forming a mob of truckers probably hepped up on white crosses and encouraging them to smash everybody that gets in their way but it's funny and it has a catchy chorus this song became the inspiration for and lent its name to a very popular 1970s movie that further pushed the CB and trucker craze deeper into the very fabric of our society. The song and the movie were both called Convoy. Like a white cross through a trucker's bloodstream, the CB craze rushed through the nation. Other musicians hopped on the trucker bandwagon. Television wasn't too far behind, with shows like Moving On, about two men, Sonny and Will, and the adventures they got into driving their rig across the country, and BJ and the Bear, about a man named BJ and a chimp confusingly named Bear, and the adventures they got into driving their rig across the country. Well, the Bear didn't drive. BJ did. I think the Bear just handled the white crosses. The CB craze even led to the creation of the Citizen Kane of beer smuggling movies, Smokey and the Bandit. The whole damn plot falls apart if you take the CB out of that film. It seemed like everybody had a CB in those days. I even had a small battery-powered one that mounted on the handlebars of my bike. I would pedal around the neighborhood, talking on my CB, reaching nobody except the weird guy two blocks over who was twice divorced, lived in his mother's basement, and painted his van with a broom. I'd bet he could find white crosses. You see, I wanted to be an over-the-road trucker. I wanted to haul those loads up through the mountains, down through the valleys, across swollen rivers, and through the pouring rain. All of this because that's what my father did. I mean, I could have chosen to be a failed race car driver, an absent father, or an alcoholic, but I chose to emulate the trucker in him. Still not sure that was the correct choice. Yes, Daddy drove the Big Rigs, which would eventually be the death of him. He quite frequently drove the West Coast Run, which took him from our very Midwestern state of Nebraska out to Washington State, then down through California, east through Las Vegas, and eventually back to home. I still remember the excitement on those special days when he would get back into town, pick me up from the daycare, and take me with him, usually to one of three different bars where we would eat pork tenderloin sandwiches, and then I would play pinball and feed the jukebox while he nursed a few beers and shot the breeze with the owner of the bar or whatever barmaid was on duty that day. Sometimes he'd buy some pickle cards and let me open some. He even let me keep the money I won, which I'd use to run around the Corner to the drugstore and buy a Mad Magazine Super Special, a very rare treat. If you don't know what pickle cards are, Google it up. I don't have time to explain right now. If you don't know what a Mad Magazine Super Special is, well, you're beyond help. You'll have to wait for the episode when I talk about Mad. For a while, however, my dad was doing one and two day runs, staying in the area, not getting very far afield. This was a magical time for me as it led to two of the greatest adventures of my young life trips with Dad in the big rig. I can't describe how over the moon I was to get to ride along with my father in that hulking white and chrome behemoth. The first trip would be myself and my brother Ed traveling with our dad to the bustling metropolis of Grand Island, Nebraska. I had never been to such exotic foreign places before and I could barely contain myself. It would just be a day trip out and back. We would be back before my bedtime. My father herded my brother and I into the car and headed for the terminal. He seemed to be excited too, which was odd, as my father rarely showed any emotion beyond drunk or disgruntled. He told us all about the new truck he'd been assigned, the first new truck model he'd ever had to drive. This was only his third trip in it, and he was sharing it with my brother and I. I knew he'd said that his truck was a Kenworth, so I was very confused when we entered the terminal and one of the other drivers called out to my father, Hey, whale belly, how's the Peter built? To which my father replied, No complaints yet. Made no sense to me then. I'm very disappointed that it makes sense now. My father did some very arcane things at the dispatch window. Signing this, initialing that, tucking away the packet that I thought contained his top secret mission briefing, but in all likelihood was just a bill of lading or cargo manifest. Or maybe white crosses. We got in the truck and that engine roared to life, raw power throbbing through my feet and stabbing into my very soul. I had never felt anything like it before, and to be truthful, I've never felt anything since that has affected me as much. My memory is a blur, but I know we backed across the lot, hooked up to the designated trailer, loaded down with dog food, and pulled out of the lot. After a little negotiating across smaller surface streets, we hit the highway, and my father began to open up the throttle. If I thought there was power before, I realized then that the dragon hadn't even woken up yet it was still just snoring i knew we could have reached the moon if we'd just tried my brother wasn't as impressed now i could go into great detail about the miles rolling away under the wheels the call of the open road the beautiful scenery whipping past the windows but anyone who has driven through nebraska would know immediately that this would be a lie nebraska is dull in fact a state legislator from the western part of the state actually suggested back in the 60s that the state motto should be changed to nebraska a long way across he was not wrong My father was not unaware of the fact that traveling across this blighted landscape would only hold the attention of two young boys so long. Therefore, he had made sure to stock us up with chips, candy, and sodas for the drive. We listened to the CB, occasionally got to pull the rope for the air horns, climbed in and out of the sleeper, which is a small compartment about two and a half feet high, three feet deep, and the width of the cab that was located right behind the seats. I remember that it had a heavy leather flap that could be rolled down and snapped shut to close off this compartment for sleeping. I can still. Close my eyes and smell that leather to this day. Soon enough, however, nature reared its ugly head and biology insisted that it had had enough of the soda I had consumed. I had to go to the bathroom. And I had to go now. Truck drivers then, as now, were slaves to the logbook or swindle sheets in trucker parlance. These were very strict guidelines on how long you could drive before needing to stop for a set amount of hours, and there were heavy fines up to and including suspension of your chauffeur's license, the precursor to the commercial driver's license that you must have nowadays, for violations of these hours. Bathroom breaks counted against your windshield time and were therefore strongly discouraged. My father apparently had a bladder the size of Lake Michigan, so he didn't have the usual jar that most drivers carried with them a jar which rendered most bathroom stops unnecessary because of this i was met with incredulous looks when i said i really needed to go That being said, however, my father rose to the occasion a true MacGyver of the two-lane blacktop. He produced a broom, an honest-to-God broom from somewhere in the cab. To this day, I can't figure out why he had it or where he was keeping it. He told my brother to open the passenger door while speeding down the highway in an 18-wheel semi-truck carrying 35 tons of dog kibble. As far as my brother was concerned, this was the first interesting thing that had happened the whole trip. My brother followed the command and popped the handle on the door. As he opened it, my father leaned across and jabbed the door with the broom handle, using one massive hand to force the door open with the broom handle, pushing hard against the door, forcing it open against the forces of the wind generated by a semi barreling down the road at a steady and completely illegal 65 miles an hour. It still amazes me the strength that that man had. Once the door was open, my dad raised his voice over the howling wind whipping through the cab and shouted, Moose, go! Ed, hold your brother! I turned to my father and asked, Go? Confused and a little scared, he shouted, Go! I said, Out there? He said, Don't jump out the damn door, you idiot. Just pee. Ed, hold that son of a bitch. Don't let him fall out. I finally got the picture, and I inched closer to the door of the cab. As I approached the opening, I felt my brother reach out and hook his finger in the back belt loop of my Wrangler jeans. I stood, perched precariously on the small strip of floor between the outer edge of the seat and the drop off from the cab, watching the road zipping by just a few feet below, moving in a blur, nothing distinguishable, just a never ending rush of road seemingly inches beneath my feet, waiting to me down into the buffeting flow of physics i gulped and realized that the needs of my bladder were winning out over my fears and i undid the button of my jeans slowly lowering my zipper as the jeans loosened i was sucked forward by the pressure but at the last moment still held back protected from death by the ironclad powers of a couple inches of thread and one of my brother's fingers After a moment's hesitation, I was able to begin the deed, washing a small section of the truck's trailer, staring at the flying road beneath my feet. I have never in my life felt so scared. I have never in my life felt so free. This road was mine. When I finished, my brother pulled me back into the cab, pants still open, where we collapsed on the passenger seat as my father pulled back the broomstick and the door slammed shut with a bang that shook the entire cab. As I sat there, buttoning my pants, shaking with that curious blend of excitement, fear, and adrenaline that so frequently follows life-changing events, my father, seemingly oblivious to the power of the moment, said, You probably shouldn't mention this to your mother. Ever. Every person involved in this story, except your humble narrator, is dead. I only told a very few people this story throughout the years, and even then it was a much less detailed version. So I believe I kept my promise and my mother went to her grave not knowing how close I came to being scraped along Highway 30 on the way to Grand Island. The second great adventure took place a few weeks later, at the fine line that separates spring and summer. This trip was even more special, as it was just my father and I. I don't know why my brother didn't tag along this time. He might have still been in a boredom coma from the last trip. Dangling your little brother over a highway at 65 miles an hour has limited replay value, apparently. We again left the terminal, this time hauling more pet supplies. Not dog food this time, but aquarium accessories. Things like the little bubbling treasure chests, rocks, and scuba divers that you find in fish tanks all over the world. In fact, being from a family that was not wealthy and very cheap, many of these things ended up making their way to our house and became my bath toys. As I said, we were just at the tail end of spring, and the warmer weather of summer was just over the horizon. This combination of the cooler air of spring meeting with the warmer air of the oncoming summer made for the perfect conditions for that traditional Midwestern event, the tornado. I don't recall if we were on our way to our destination or on our way back, but in any case, the rains came. First, it was big sporadic drops, hitting the windshield like june bugs, spreading out like transparent blood splatters on the glass. But soon they became smaller, faster, and closer together, hitting the window like machine gun fire, reducing the visibility of this hurtling giant to a few feet, the skies turning greenish gray, and the temperature dropping rapidly. I was, to say the least, a little concerned, and my father, veteran of a million miles of road, struggled to keep the truck in between the lines and moving forward he eased off the throttle and the truck idled down to a safer but logbook threatening 45 miles per hour after several miles of this reduced speed my father glanced in his side view mirror muttered something under his breath and pressed his foot down on the gas pedal the truck growled in response vibrating angrily and picked up speed 50 55 60 70 Soon we were doing 80 miles an hour, spraying huge sheets of water to the sides of the truck from the tires tearing down the road, the rain hitting the windshield in a solid sheet rendering the wipers useless. Still, my father pressed harder on the pedal, all the while glancing at the side-view mirror. I wondered what was going on, frightened and exhilarated by the speed and the weather. I was not reassured when my father said something that you rarely heard in the 1970s. He turned to me and said, Moose, put on your seatbelt. I did as he said and then ventured to ask what was wrong. My father seemed to deliberate for a moment, then sighed and said, look in your mirror. I turned to my window staring past the sheet of rain hitting it and looked at the side view mirror which seemed eight feet tall and two feet wide after a moment i was able to focus past the water and i saw it the biggest tornado i'd ever seen moving along parallel to the highway moving towards us i couldn't tell how far behind us it was but it was coming on fast a huge dark inverted cone spinning curving its tail back and forth like a mountain lion's tail twitching just before lunging for the attack We had nowhere to stop, nowhere to go. The flat plains of Nebraska stretched out around us on either side, in front and in back. Our only hope was the pounding diesel engine in this massive Kenworth being able to propel us to safety. My father seemed to grasp the gravity of the situation, but he wasn't anywhere near panic, so I assumed we still had a reasonable margin of safety. However, as a kid, I had no way to judge what that margin might be. Suddenly, there was a short break in the rain, and we saw, ahead of us and on the left side of the highway, the only feature besides the occasional tree that broke the flat monotony, a billboard. As we flew past it, there emerged from behind it, like some 1950s sitcom, a state patrol car, its lights and siren in full swing, fishtailing up across the shoulder and onto the highway, heading for the truck that was doing well over the legal speed limit of 55. I could see the trooper behind us, lights glaring in the mirror as he gained on us. Just when it looked as if he would smash into the rear of the trailer, he swerved to the left and disappeared from my sight. I could, however, see his lights appear in my father's side-view mirror, reflecting onto the side of his face, silhouetting him in alternating hues of red and blue. The trooper pulled up even with the cab of the truck. I could see him turn his head with his lips pulled into a snarl as he looked at my father. With his right hand he pointed at my dad, then angrily pointed down, then pointed ahead of the truck and towards the shoulder to the right of the truck. Even young stupid me knew that translated to You, slow down and pull over. My father, however, looked right back at the trooper, shook his head no, and pointed back over his left shoulder with his thumb. The trooper, taken aback by my father's refusal to comply, glanced quickly behind his car, then turned back to glare at my father again. I have long been a fan of comedy, both high and low. I've seen pratfalls, pie fights, slapstick, and physical comedy. I've marveled at wordplay, puns, and innuendo. I have witnessed some of the most amazing examples of comedic timing ever known to man. However, I have yet to see anything quite as funny as the double-take the trooper performed immediately after turning back to my father when his brain suddenly processed the giant funnel tearing up the road behind us. He turned to look at my father for the third time. This time, however, he raised his right hand to the brim of his Smokey the Bear hat and snapped off a quick salute that would have made any drill sergeant proud and stomped down on his gas pedal. That 1970s Ford Crown Victoria police car roared to life, the motor sound drowning out even the Kenworth's powerhouse of an engine and sped on down the highway, leaving our 80 mile an hour truck behind like we were standing still. In moments, all we could see were his taillights, and then they too were gone. It was just me and dad and the trusty truck in a race against nature's vacuum cleaner. I stared in the mirror as the tornado crept closer and closer. I was scared, really scared. When I glanced over at Dad, I could see his knuckles turning white as he gripped the steering wheel, eyes darting constantly from the road ahead to the side mirror to the speedometer and back to the road. He didn't speak, neither did I. The CB was either silent or off, I don't remember which. The only soundtrack to what I thought were the last minutes of our lives were the pounding of the rain on the windows, the steady whine of the tires on the road, and the roar of that big bad diesel motor. There are worse sounds to hear while careening to your death. Just when it seemed that the tornado was upon us, preparing to bite into the rear of the trailer, my father did the last thing I ever would have expected. He slowed down drastically. As he pumped those brakes, bleeding off our life-saving speed, he also cranked the steering wheel hard to the right. He had made it to an exit. The truck swung to the right, teetering for a moment on the very edge of tipping over, then found its footing, tires squealing on the blacktop as they got a bite of the road and threw the truck in this new direction. My father didn't hesitate a moment and floored the pedal once again, frantically shifting up through the gears in a desperate attempt to milk every ounce of speed he could out of that truck, all to get away from that tornado. We blasted up that exit ramp, gaining speed the entire time, blowing straight through the stop sign at the top where the exit met across highway and continued on down that highway. Almost as soon as we reached the highway, I could see the tornado through my father's window, heading on up the highway we had just left. Had we not hit that exit, the tornado would have won. After traveling a few miles down this highway, we pulled over into a little truck stop and went inside. I had a patty melt. My dad had a couple of beers and what appeared to be half a pack of cigarettes. He told the story to the waitress, who told it to the cook, who told it to the manager, who gave us our meal for free. Since we were stopped, he filled the gas tank and we headed back towards home. Still, we rode in silence, each of us contemplating the events of the day in our own way. After a while, I said, Dad, I probably shouldn't tell Mom about this either, right? He chuckled and said, you bet your ass, kid. Then he turned on the CB. Many years later, I felt the need to connect with the hard-working truck drivers, the men and women like my father who fought their way through all kinds of weather and road conditions to deliver the needed items and supplies that helped build this great country. Your groceries wouldn't be there without these drivers. Neither would medicines, building materials, and most importantly, aquarium decorations. The adventures I had with my father in that 18-wheeler made lifelong memories and helped make me the man I am today, and I knew I had to honor that legacy, the myth and legend of the long. Distance truck driver. I bought five hundred white crosses from a co worker for twenty bucks. You have you been, been out of you time. Out of time with Moose.